May you forever feel your cell phone vibrating in the pocket it's not even in. And may you never be quite certain as to whether that pressure is a fart or a poop. Okay. Want to guess what we're talking about today? Um, curses. <laughs> how how does that tie into curses? Well, I'm cursing you. Oh, you are cursing me. Yeah. Okay. May every sock you wear be slightly rotated. Oh, that's just mean. You know, yeah. I have issues with socks. Yeah. See. There huh. you go. So curses yeah. today. All right. Well, let's do our little introduction, and um, we'll get started. This podcast may not be suitable for children. If you are easily offended or bothered by strong language or dark humor, this may not be the podcast for you. This podcast accepts no responsibility for butthurt feelings or erections lasting longer than four hours. Thank you. And welcome to the What the Was That podcast. I'm your host, Dwayne. And I'm Jill. And I guess we're talking about curses today. We're talking about curses. And so, not just the fun four-letter ones. Right. Apparently you put one on me about my socks. Thank you. <laughs> I didn't really put it on you. I was just reading it for fun. I got you. So, um... <laughs> So we didn't really talk about who was going first or any of that. No, this so. is kind of like, hey, we're just going to start right now and yeah, not... let's just go. Just roll with it. Well, so you have two topics, right? Yeah, I do have two topics. And, and I think I've got three. So you go first. Well, yeah, I guess I'll go first. So my first one is about the curse of the Busby Stoop Chair. We talked a bit about this last night. We did. Um, because you wanted to know if I mentioned what a stoop is in my notes. And I didn't. A stoop is a stair. So like, you know, like an entrance to a, a building. So that's not in here. Now you know. <laughs> <laughs> but we know it's a, a stoop chair now. Yes. Okay, so this chair now is mounted high on a wall at the Thirsk Museum in England due to the curse on it that anyone who sits in it will die soon after. Okay, so. so... So because of this curse, they now have it where you can't sit in it. Right. So it all started in the late 17th century. Um, a counterfeiter. It's a, a nice career path, isn't it? I mean, probably lucrative if you're good at it. Yeah. Um, his name was Daniel Alti. Moved his illegal business to the quiet community of Kirkby Whisk in North Yorkshire, England. Audie had a daughter named Elizabeth, and a local man named Thomas Busby fell in love with Elizabeth. Audie didn't approve, but Elizabeth and Busby got married. So, it seemed weird to me. He didn't approve of their marriage, but Audie and Busby became business partners in this counterfeiting business. Um, Does seem odd. Yeah. It was a strained partnership because Busby was a drunk. So I bet he's drinking up all the profits. Probably so, and probably was messing stuff up. So Busby and Elizabeth, they moved into a local inn. That's where they lived. I guess it was kind of like an apartment. I thought more of like a hotel, but 
they were living there. So one day, Aldi came to the inn to force Elizabeth to go home with him and leave Busby for good. She refused to go anywhere with him until Busby got back home that day. When he got home, of course, Busby was very drunk. Audie and Busby began arguing. Audie was arguing because he didn't want his daughter married to or associated with a drunkard. Busby was arguing because Audie had been sitting in his favorite chair. So, Audie left to return home during the argument. Sometime later that night, Busby went to Audie's home where he bludgeoned him to death with one of his counterfeiting hammers. Okay. So, So, I guess they were... Were they counterfeiting coins or something? Probably. I don't know what they would use the hammers for, but... It's probably a a striking type mint, I guess. So, he he beat him to death with one. Nice. Um, They found Audie's body, um, and Busby was charged with his murder and eventually found guilty in a trial. So, Busby was hanged in 1702. Afterwards, and I had to look this up, so I've got an explanation. Afterwards, he was dipped in pitch and hung from a gibbet. Okay. So, that means that his body basically was hung on display to discourage others from breaking the law. Like, used as an example. I mean, that that would work. Yeah. And, And he was dipped in pitch, which is like tar, to slow the decomp of the body. That way he didn't decompose too quick. They could leave him up there longer. Wow. That, I guess that's serious. Yeah. So the, the curse comes in. As Busby was being led to his execution, he cursed all people to death that sat in his favorite chair. So the owner of the inn tried capitalizing on public interest in this curse. He renamed the inn the Busby Stoop Inn. He left the chair in the spot and told everyone who came in about it. So he's he's using it as like a sideshow side attraction to get people to come into his inn. Right, so he's wanting people to come in and see if the curse is for real. Right, or come in and look at the chair or whatever. So some place the number of deaths of those who sat in the cursed chair at 63. Wow. But there's only, like, some, some documented occurrences since World War II. Um, one of those, a young builder's apprentice, had lunch with some of his co-workers at the inn. And, of course, they were daring him to sit in the chair, which he did. Later that day, he fell through a roof and died. Wow. It was eventually stored in the cellar to try to prevent deaths. So we're going to advertise it. Now we're going to take it away. Yeah, once people started dying, I guess the owner realized, oh shit, there really is a curse on this chair and I'm killing people. Could he be held accountable for that? I don't know. Um, But there was a delivery man who was down in the cellar, I guess, dropping off his stuff. And he heard about the legend and so he sat in the chair. Later that evening, he lost control of his car and crashed. And it didn't kill him immediately, but he did die from the injuries. There was a chimney sweep who sat in the chair one evening after he had been drinking. I guess kind of like Busby used to do. Um, He left late that night, but didn't make it home. He was actually found hanging from a gate post. And this is kind of interesting. He wasn't far from the inn. 
He was hanging from a gatepost next to a replica of the gibbet where Busby's body was displayed that is located next to the inn. So the inn has put up a replica of this thing that they hung his body from as part of their attraction, I guess. Their mystique. And this guy was actually found hanging from a post next to it. So did he hang himself? I don't know. It just said he was found hanging. Huh. The tale of the chair's curse remained all the way into the 1970s. Two young airmen were at the inn one night and were daring each other to sit in the chair. One of them very briefly put his butt on the chair just for a second. When they left the inn, they were in a car accident and were both killed. Mm. Oh, so he took, him, took his friend with him. Mm-hmm. I Did- guess since they were both daring each other, they right. both got sucked into it. Um, now, like I said, the chair is mounted high up on a wall at the Thirsk Museum, so nobody can sit in it. And it said, no matter how much they offer to pay in order to be allowed to do so. So I guess there's people that actually go to this museum and are like, hey, will you get that chair down? I'll give you a hundred bucks if you let me sit in it. Right. Now, I had heard on another show that had covered this topic that the chair that's hanging on the wall isn't the original chair. I actually saw where there was some evidence that the chair isn't old enough. Right. To be that chair. I don't know if they've hidden the actual chair away. Or if it's been destroyed. If it's been destroyed, if it's been misplaced, and they're just using this as local legend or what. Because what year did you say this took place? uh, 1702. I mean... There was also some, some theory that it was more about the chair being in that position that was his favorite in the in the inn because right. the inn had like a restaurant bar area and that's where the chair was right so there was some discussion as to whether the curse was on the actual chair or on that seating area well that was his favorite spot didn't he wouldn't he carried from when he was escorted out didn't he curse the chair yeah well it said as he was being taken to his execution he, he cursed, cursed the it. chair so cursed that anyone that sat in his favorite seat. So didn't really say anyone who sits in my chair. Well, which I'm sure this is. I don't know the exact phrasing of the curse because right. there's not well, good documentation of that. But and the thing is, in 1702, you said. Mm-hmm. So my story has a date of 1701. Hmm. So it ties right in there. Kinda, and um. This was back during pirates. Yeah, and they, I mean, they didn't keep great written records of things. And if right. they did, it didn't make it to now. So that kind of gives you the, the, uh, the scene to, to set this in your, in your imagination of what it kind of looked like. Right. So, and, you know, I imagine the chair probably was just a regular Just a regular chair. wooden chair. Right. Yeah. You know. So I guess I will ease on into my story, which, um, the the curse isn't all that much to it, but kinda. But I did the um, the Oak Island mystery, which is a TV show. I yes, think. it is. It's on Discovery. I think it's on season seven now. Something like so, that. So seven, seventeen, whatever. 
So the Oak Island mystery refers to the stories of buried treasure and unexplained objects found on or near Oak Island. And that's located in Nova Scotia. And since the 19th century, there's been a number of attempts have been made to locate the treasure and artifacts. Theories about the artifacts present present, oh my god, I wish I could read. (laughs) Present on the island range from pirate treasure to Shakespearean manuscripts to possibly even the Holy Grail or the Ark of the Covenant. And those two items would have had to been buried by the Knights Templar. So various items have surfaced over the years that were found on the island that have been carbon dated and found to be hundreds of years old. Although the items can be considered treasures on their own, no significant main treasure has been found. So like a coin here and there, but not right. a treasure chest full of stuff. Um, there was a, a gold link found. So, you know, and in, let's see, where did I get to? Yeah. So there have been a lot of people and many groups to have dig on Oak Island. And the original shaft is in an unknown location today because of everybody digging around. And um, it's also become known as the money pit. So money pit because that's where all the money is or because they're wasting all their money trying to get to it? Because they have spent probably billions of dollars trying to excavate this to find whatever's at the bottom. You know, if they just saved all that money, they'd have had their treasure. Yeah, but there's a lot of folks. And we're talking way back in the day. Can we make a legend about our backyard and charge people to dig? I mean, sure, we can toss out a coin here or there. Yeah, and we'll be rich. There it is. So It's brilliant. Brilliant. Run an excavator company. Uh-uh. <laughs> Those aren't cheap, so. <laughs> okay, so the original story um, involves a dying sailor from the crew of Captain Kidd in 1701 that stated that the treasure was worth about $2 million and it was buried on the island. And, but the most, the most wide told story of this is Daniel McGinnis found a depression in the ground in 1799 while he was looking for a location for a farm. And McGinnis, who believed that the, the depression was consistent with Captain Kidd's story, sought out help with digging. And with the assistance of two men identified only as John Smith and Anthony Vaughn, he excavated the depression and discovered a layer of flagstones about two foot deep. And once they got past that, once they got down close to ten foot, they found oak platforms, hence Oak Island. Mm -hmm. And um, from that point further down, every ten foot, they would find an oak platform. So, as they were digging, they had noticed that the dirt was slightly looser, so it had already been dug out, and that's why they believed that this is where the treasure was buried. Now, 
as they got down to about what was it 30 foot they um they abandoned the dig due to superstitious dread meaning they just had a bad feeling or yeah. it was 30 an unlucky number then i'm thinking they caught a bad vibe off of it well first up let me tell you i've been 12 13 foot down in a ditch and have that much dirt above you it's a little nerving a little unsettling yeah like you're gonna be buried alive soon yeah and um so and on one construction site that i was working on i was only in a, a ditch that was about maybe three and a half four foot deep and the side broke off and it, it wasn't bad but it was enough to pin me against the other wall right and it um that that was even scary itself because like I was still my you know my shoulders were above ground but but you were stuck yeah and trying to get out of all that dirt's rough yeah so now there have been um a couple of stories that that were consistent with the one I just talked about but then there was another one that said that he discovered this while he was out fishing and he found a block and tackle hanging from a branch over the depression. Oh, kind of like pointing to it. Kind of like somebody had already started, you know, had been there prior to. It. Yeah. So, but um, if you if you want more information on the Oak Island, um, Astonishing Legends done a great show. I think it's a four-part series. Super in-depth. I mean... They turn over every rock that they can find about it. And there's the series on Discovery, too, where Correct. you can watch them spin their wheels. And yep. I'm uh, going to have to wait until they find something and then watch the whole thing because I need some payout. Yeah, because we've watched a couple of seasons of it, and we were like, okay, this is, this is too much. But the curse of Oak Island is that seven men will have to die before... The island gives up its treasure. And to this date, six men have died. So one more, and it should give up the treasure. You know, if I was that close and I was out there digging, I'd find somebody on my crew that I didn't really care that much and just kind of, like, kick them in the hole and You're shoot ruthless. them in the head or something. And ruthless. <laughs> I mean... And y'all say I'm mean. Because then it's seven and you're there. <laughs> and then you're going to find it. I, I think the the actual pit has to to do the deed not you you don't think a pirate and his treasure would appreciate hey that kind of a maybe backstabbing moment never can tell but i mean these guys that are looking for this treasure are getting on up there oh they are because they i mean they, there's private people that own these right lots on the island and one fellow i think he was pushing like 95 years old so yeah so well maybe he'll just go walk out there and fall over be the seventh right does that count i don't know but that's my short curse story um like i said six have died we're waiting on a seventh push someone in a hole well it's a deep hole i think now it's down to about 100 foot sacrifice them to the island yep so my next curse is about a painting i know it sounds kind of harmless um, it's called The Crying Boy. And this was a mass-printed 
reprint of a painting that was available between the 1950s and 1970s. And from what I gathered, it was available, like, in department stores, like, kind of just everywhere. Kind of like JCPenney's. Yeah. Um, and lots of people had them. So, the signature on the paintings is Giovanni Bragolin, but that may have been a fake name that the artist was using, and some people say it was really a mysterious character named Francho Seville that was going under that name. Okay. But the the signature is Giovanni Bragolin, so we're going to call him that. So, Braglin, he painted crying children. So, there That's was more than, more than just one that he did. Um, and they were usually street urchins, which basically like homeless. homeless children, probably orphans. And he would paint portraits of them crying. People like to hang them in their living rooms and stuff for some reason. That's weird. Yeah. Even to me. Yeah, but it was popular then. Um, one of these children was supposedly, there's, there's some legend with this, doesn't really know if this was a real kid or not, but, um, but one of these children was Don Bonillo, who accidentally started a fire in Spain that killed his parents. So, I guess that's why he was on the street. His parents were dead from the fire he started. Okay. But wherever Don Bonillo went fire followed and so he was nicknamed Diablo so there were there was more than one one fire I I guess so now the legend says that he was adopted against a priest's wishes by the painter and was abused so this painter who liked to paint pictures of crying children supposedly adopted him and Hmm. Beat on him, I guess. The boy died in the 1970s by fire. How old was he? I'm not yet. Um, he was in an explosion caused by a car accident. So I'm guessing at least driving age. Wow. Um, on September 4th, 1985, the British tabloid, keep in mind I'm saying tabloid, you know, so that's not a... a the Inquirer. Yeah, the Inquirer, that kind of thing. Um, called The Sun, published about the cursed painting causing fires. In it, a local firefighter said the painting has turned up unscathed in fires all across the UK, and the fires started spontaneously. So just out of nowhere, it just erupts in the fire, and everything burns but but, the painting. But the painting. Okay. And this has happened in multiple homes with this print. And it's just this one single print. Uh, that kind of differs depending on what you read. Or is it all it's of them? Any of the crying children paintings, I think, is from what I gathered. Okay. But it kind of focuses on this one kid who had a fire tendency. Kind of where the curse started. Right. Okay. So, Jane McCutcheon, she was one of the people who had the print in her living room in the 1980s. She was cleaning her kitchen one day when she noticed that her drapes, blinds, and curtains were on fire. Everyone escaped out of her home, and the home was completely destroyed, except the painting. So, she overheard one of the firefighters that was there putting out the fire 
who happened to see the painting say, oh no, not another. Oh wow. So he had seen multiple fires in this painting live through it. Right. Wow. Now, most of these fires had normal causes, like cigarettes and grease fires, that kind of thing. So it wasn't like a supernatural fire that just... Okay, so it just wasn't, oh, the air caught on fire. Right. Okay. But the picture wouldn't burn. Right. And And, I mean, how many of us have close calls with burning dinner or something that... You know, something that happens that the house could catch on fire, but it didn't. Right. But in these houses with these paintings, it they were burning. Right. So, um, a man named Stephen Punt did some testing, and we actually watched the video. Yeah, that's, that's actually fixing to talk about mm-hmm. that, but I didn't want to step on your toes and jump the gun on that. Yeah, he, he did some testing, um, and there's a video on YouTube where he has a flame just right up on this painting. And... Trying, basically, to set this painting on fire. Right. Um, And only the corner of the painting burns. Like, it burns out of the frame or whatever a little bit. Mm -hmm. And detaches in the lower right-hand corner from the frame. But that's it. But that's it. It makes it to the boy. And the fire literally burns itself out. Huh. So, that that was weird. Um, and he theorized that there was some sort of flame retardant varnish or something on the painting. But I would think if that's the case, why would it why would it stop at the boy? Right. Like it shouldn't catch at all and if it, that was the case. I mean, they're I don't know, that's strange. Maybe a different type of paint that he was using was a flame retardant. Maybe, maybe that color. Right. I don't know. But he said it's also printed on compressed board, which makes it difficult to burn. Now, I don't know anything about the burning properties of compressed board. Maybe you know Mm-mm. better than I do, but... Cardboard burns pretty easy. And that's what I thought, and I would think like that pressed wood stuff, it, now, it catches pretty good, doesn't it? Well, when I was doing, um, when I had my stereo shop doing car audio, we used um, MDF, which is super compressed sawdust, mm-hmm. and um, it burnt pretty easy. Yeah, so I don't, I don't think... That would really be a factor. But. I wouldn't think so either. So there's there's a lot of question to that one. I don't know if it's true or not. I just found it kind of interesting that this painting of a kid that was crying would cause houses to burn down. And supposedly the prints. And I'm not even talking about the original painting. We're talking reprints. Right. That are in people's homes. So the type of paint used shouldn't have any effect on it whatsoever. It's It's a copy. Right. So, no telling about that. Yeah. So, I, I think it's weird that you paint pictures of crying kids. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that why you'd want some strength. Because that's sad to me. Yeah. Like, here's a picture of a crying orphan that's living on the street in our happy household. Like, right. <laughs> that's, that's just weird. Okay. So, my second one is about uh, the curse of Little Bastard. Oh. Wow. So, and James Dean was the owner of Little Bastard, which was his race car. Okay. So wasn't he the what you're rebelling against? What yeah. What do you got kind of guy? Right. He is a rebel without a cause. Gotcha. Okay. So, in April 1954, after securing the role of Cal, is that Trask? Trask. I don't Trask. Know. Cal. Um, <laughs> Jose. 
<laughs> if we go back to episode one, Jose. Jose. Um, in East of Eden, James Dean purchased a motorcycle and later a used sports car. So it must have been his, you know, that was in the very beginning. So he got a little bit of money, got him a motorcycle, bought him a little sports car. Sounds like what you'd do. Yes, exactly. And you'd put a stereo in it. Maybe. <laughs> Depends. If I'm racing, that's just extra weight. But you got to have tunes to listen to while you're racing. Not if you're going fast. <laughs> Come on, Ricky Bobby. <laughs> so, uh, before filming began on Rebel Without a Cause, Dean competed in the Palm Springs road races with the Speedster on March 26th and 27th. His final race with that Speedster was at the Santa Ana, or, yeah, Santa, Santa Barbara mm, on Memorial Day. Oh, gosh, my brain. On May 30th, where he started in 18th position, worked his way up to 4th position, and then overread the engine, blowing a piston. He didn't finish that race. So he made made up some time. Oh, yeah, he was he was doing so he, well. So he was a good race driver. Yeah. Race car driver. He drove good. He did. <laughs> so... During the filming for The Giant, from June through mid-September, Warner Brothers had barred Dean from any type of racing activities. So apparently his employer said, you don't need to race. Well, they needed him to be pretty. They didn't need him right. to be, like, half-burned and bruised and broken legs. and <laughs> Didn't need the clear fire. Didn't need the clear fire and him stabbing himself in the leg with a knife to prove that he's paralyzed, but That's he's it. not. We That's just told it. the whole plot of Talladega Nights. Hey, you're welcome. If you ain't seen Talladega Nights... Then uh, you're last. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. So, where did I get to? On September 21st, as, Jane, as, as Dean was finishing the giant, he traded his speedster for a new, more powerful, faster Porsche... 550. Upgrade time. Yes. And he had entered it in an upcoming road race that was scheduled for October 2nd. 1st and 2nd. So he had also purchased, now this is a smart move on his side, he had also purchased a 1955 Ford station wagon and an open wheel trailer to haul his new Porsche on, which he called Little Bastard. And according to Lee Raskin, author of James Dean, at Speed, Dean asked him, sorry, asked a custom car painter and pinstriper, Dean Jeffries, to paint Little Bastard on the car. So he officially wanted that to be Little Bastard. Yeah, and it was painted on the, the back cowl. So it was kind of a little, a little wing that comes out over the back. Mm-hmm. It's right there. Now, Dean had been given the nickname Little Bastard by Bill Hickman, a Warner Brothers stunt driver. And Hickman was part of Dean's group driving to this, what is that, Cialis? Salinas. Salinas Road Race on September 30th, 1955. Hickman says that Dean, Little Bastard, and that Dean, oh, I'm sorry, I messed that up. Hickman said he called Dean Little Bastard and Dean called Hickman Big Bastard. Just another version of the the origin there. 
So, let's see. This is the other version of the origin. Okay. So, that the president of Warner Brothers had referred to Dean as a little bastard after refusing to vacate his temporary East of Eden trailer on the studio lot. And Dean wanted to get even with Warner by naming his race car, because Warner also banned him from racing, right. named it Little Bastard, to to show the spies the racing band during all the filming. So, so basically like a big F you to Warner Brothers. Right. So, but I bet even if that's the cause of the nickname that his friend probably joked around with him and called him Little Bastard. Oh, yeah. So they're probably both true. Right. Like, that's where he got it. And so, because his friend was calling him Little Bastard, he called his friend Big Bastard, and it just all... Just ran together. Ran together. Right. So, when Dean introduced himself to British actor Alec Guinness outside Villa Capri Restaurant in Hollywood, he asked him to take a look at the spider. Guinness thought the car appeared sinister and told Dean, if you get in that car, you'll be found dead in it by this time next week. This encounter took place September 23rd, 1955, seven days before Dean's death. So did he unknowingly put a curse on him? Maybe. Or could he just sense the curse on the car? Maybe he just felt that that car had some bad vibes in it. What is up with you, Cat? He says meow, and we're not paying attention to yeah. him. He wants to talk on the podcast. So, I keep saying so, so much. So, so, so. On September 30th, 1955, Dean and his Porsche factory trained mechanic, Rolf, I'm not even going to try that last name. Witherick. We'll go with that. We're in a competition motor's in Hollywood preparing Little Bastard for the weekend sports car race at Cialis. Salinas. Salinas. Cialis is like a get-your-dick-hard pill. Uh, <laughs> we're not responsible for erections lasting longer than four hours. And neither is Little Bastard. Salinas. Our cat says hi, y'all. <laughs> so, Dean originally intended to tow the Porsche behind the Ford station wagon driven by Hickman and accompanied by a professional photographer, Sanford H. Roth, who is planning a photo story of Dean at the races for Collier Magazine. But because the spider didn't have enough break-in miles prior to the race, Roth recommended that Dean drive, drive it to Salinas, to get more seat time behind the wheel. So is that like a requirement that it have a certain number of miles on it? Or does it just run better after it gets a certain number of miles? It's like a break-in period to make sure everything's, you know, working properly. And Was oh, that where they say, like, for some people you're supposed to get your oil changed when you buy a brand new car after like the first 200 miles just to get the metal bits and stuff out of the car that may have been? Uh, maybe. I just know that, you know, sometimes you have to... You can't accelerate past a certain speed until you get X amount of miles on it. That way, all the stuff is proven to be working right. I bet that's like the car guy's version of old wives' tales. Maybe. So, 
At 3.30 p.m., Dean was stopped by California Highway Patrolman just south of Bakersfield for driving 65 in a 55-mile-an-hour zone. Kind of an asshole cop. Yeah. Hickman, following the spider in the Ford with the trailer, also got a ticket for driving 20 miles an hour over the limit. As the speed limit for all vehicles towing trailers were 45 miles an hour. So, do you think he managed to ticket them both because the guy following him pulled over behind him too when he got stopped because they were riding together? Probably. And he's like, well, you were going the same speed as him, so you get a ticket too? Probably. Wow, that cop. Right. God forbid he do his job. He must not have liked James Dean's movies. (laughs) So, after receiving the citations, Dean and Hickman turn to avoid going through Bakersfield, Bakersfield slow 25 five mile an hour district. Yeah, I wouldn't go through no speed trap after that either. The SR-166 was known as the shortcut for sports car drivers going to Salinas called the Racers Road, which took them directly to Blackwell's Corner. At approximately 5.15, Dean and Hickman left the Blackwell's Corner driving towards Paso Robles. Paso Robles. Approximately 60 miles away, Dean accelerated in Little Bastard and left the Ford Station Wagon, station wagon far behind. Sta- <laughs> station Wagon. <laughs> At approximately 5.15, Dean and Hickman left Blackwell's Corner driving towards Paso Robles approximately 60 miles away. Dean accelerated in Little Bastard and left the Ford station wagon far behind passing cars along the way towards the junction of Route 466 and Route 41. At approximately 545, a black and white 1950 Ford Tudor? 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 T-U-D-O-R. I think it's pronounced... Two-door, but that sounds like you're saying two-door. Two-door. Right. Driven at high speed was heading east on Route 466. Its driver, a 23-year-old U.S. veteran and Cal Poly student, Donald Turnipseed. Turnipseed? That sounds like such a made-up name to me. Like Turnipseed? Really? That's like Johnny Appleseed, but Donald Mm. Turnipseed. That's... Sounds odd, but we'll go with yeah. it. That's what's on the interweb. So it must be true. Has to be. He made a left turn onto Route 41 heading north towards Fresno. As Turnipseed's Ford crossed over the center line, Dean clearly seen an imminent crash and apparently tried to steer the spider in a sidestepping race maneuver but with insufficient time and space, the two cars collided almost head-on. A witness, John Roberts White, reportedly saw the spider smash into the ground two or three times in cartwheels. It landed in a gully beside the shoulder of the road northwest of the junction, and the velocity of the impact sent the much heavier Ford sailing 39 feet down Route 466 in the opposing lane. The collision was witnessed by several passerbys who stopped and helped. A woman 
with nursing experience, attended to Dean and detected a weak pulse in his neck. But according to the woman, death appeared to have been instantaneous. So even though he had a weak pulse, like there wasn't much hope. Right. The California Highway Patrol Captain Ernest Tripke Tripke and his partner, Corporal Ronald Nelson, were called to the scene. Before Tripke and Nelson arrived, Dean had been extricated. Extricated. I was wanting to say extradited. Extricated from the spider's mangled cockpit. His left foot had been crushed between the clutch and the brake pedal and was severely injured, and his vehicle took the brunt of the crash, suffering broken neck and massive internal and external injuries. Nelson witnessed an unconscious and dying Dean being placed in the ambulance and a barely conscious Witherick, Witherick, who had been thrown from the spider lying on the shoulder of the road next to the wrecked vehicle. Dean and Weatherick were taken to were taken in the same ambulance to Paso Robles War Memorial Hospital twenty eight miles away. He was pronounced dead on arrival at six twenty by by the attending emergency room physician, Doctor Boster. Bossert. The yeah. cause of death listed Dean on Dean's certificate, death certificate was a broken neck multiple fractures of the upper and lower jaw and both left and right arms were broken with internal injuries. Warren Beth Beath wrote that Dean had died in the arms of his friend Bill Hickman. Despite reports of Dean speeding around 85 miles an hour, Nelson estimated the actual speed was about 55 based on the wreckage and position of Dean's body. So that was the actual, that was the highway patrolman that estimated the speed. So right. that's in, in the accident report. Right. That it was probably around 55. But, okay, so I'm I'm a little confused because I know, obviously, it was made to be lightweight. It was a race car and it cartwheeled and all that. But aren't those supposed to have extra safety features like a roll cage and... Not back in 1955. Oh, Okay. That was before safety was important. Oh. This is back when cars were actually made of steel. And that's probably, like, James Dean dying and his car probably made it where we had to be more safe in our race cars. I'm pretty sure. Probably lots of other people dying, too. Um, But, yeah, there were no airbags, no nothing. Yeah, cause, well, because now race cars, I mean, they flip and spin and basically disintegrate, and then the drivers get out and walk away. Right. There's a The cockpit is actually, the car is meant to break apart from the driver. Right. So, unless the invisible fire gets him, unless the invisible fire gets him, his buddy Weatherick survived with a broken jaw and serious hip and femur injuries that required immediate surgery. Turnip Seed was only slightly injured with facial bruises and a bloody nose. After being interviewed by CHP, Turnip Seed hitchhiked in the dark to his home in Tulare. Hickman and Roth arrived at the scene approximately 10 minutes after the crash and Hickman assisted in extricating Dean from the wreckage. Some sources 
give Dean's last known words uttered right before impact when Weatherich told Dean to slow down as the Ford Tudor pulled into their lane as that guy's got to stop. He'll see us. According to the coroner's deposition taken from Weatherich in the hospital, he could not recall any of the exact moments leading up to the crash. They're probably just guessing what kind of conversation they'd be having in the car. Right. Kind of like when we were rear-ended that time on the way to a concert, and I look and see it happening in the rearview mirror and look at you and just say, oh, "Oh, shit. shit. And you're like, what? And then boom. About that time, (laughs) my glasses fall off my face. Right. That'd be sad if those those probably will be my last words. Yeah, mine too. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah. So... While filming Giant, Dean had also filmed a short public service announcement announcement with actor Gig Young and the National Safety Council. Council. One of those, like, the more you know kind of things. Right. It featured Dean dressed in a young, as the young jet rink, talking about how driving fast on the highway can be more dangerous than on a racetrack. At the end segment, instead of saying the catchphrase, the life you save may be your own, Dean ad-libbed the line, the life you might save might be mine. Oh. It's like he kind of predicted his own... Yeah. Crash and burn. Right. Um, So it's kind of like, hey, oops. Yeah. Um... So now to the curses, because that's what all this is leading up to. Just want to give a little background on the car. Well, I mean, he was kind of cursed by that guy who saw the car and said, you're going to be dead in it in a week. Right. And I don't know how long ago it was prior to that that he had made that comment or changed it's, it. It's Oh, about the About the, the life commercial? you save might be mine. Right. I yeah. So the curse of Dean's car... Little Bastard has become part of America's cultural mythology. Warren Beth and James Dean, an archivist and author, believes that the source of the myth is George Barris, the self-described king of customizers. And he said that he was the, the first to purchase the wrecked car. Barris promoted the cursed after he placed the wreck on public display in 1956. Over the years, Bears described mysteries, a, described a mysterious series of accidents, not all of them car crashes that occurred from 1956 to 1960 involving Little Bastard, resulting in serious injuries to spectators and even a truck driver's death. So kind of like the in owner in my first story about the stoop chair. Right. Like, let's tell everybody about this horrible stuff that happens and get them to come look at our stuff. Mm-hmm. So, Raskin's 2005 book, James Dean, at Speed, states that the wrecked spider was declared a total loss by the insurance company, which paid Dean's father a fair market value as a settlement. Which is what they do. Right. The insurance company, in turn, threw a 
through a salvage yard in Burbank, sold the spider to Dr. William F. Eschrick. Because after they pay you for the wrecked car, they own it. And they can sell it. And they need to make some of their money back. Right. Esch- cat says hi again. <laughs> Eschrick had competed against Dean in his own sports car at three races during 1955. He dismantled the engine and the mechanical parts and installed the Porsche 4-cam engine into his Lotus 4 race car. Barris... Is that Barris's Barris car? Yeah, I guess he wrote a book called Cars of the Stars. Yeah. Barris's Car of the Stars that Dr. McHenry, driving a powered-by engine from Dean's car, was killed when his vehicle went out of control and struck a tree on the first race in which the motor had been used since Dean's mishap. So it's kind of like if you dismantled Carrie from the Stephen King book and Mm -hmm. pieced it out, and it's going to continue killing. Another doctor, William F. Eshrid? Eshrid. How come none of these people have real normal names? Well, those two are so Eshrid and Eshrid. Yeah, that's... that's Odd. Of Burbank was injured in the same race when his car, which contained a drivetrain from Dean's car, rolled over. Eshrick, interviewed a day after McHenry's fatal crash, said he had loaned the Dean transmission and several other parts to McHenry. I don't believe he was using the transmission when he crashed, but He was using the back swing arm that holds the rear end. McHenry appeared to have the distinction of being the only bona fide victim of the curse. So he was the only one that we can trace back and document was actually using his parts and was killed. Right. But I feel like the guys that were injured that you can document that they're bonafide too they just didn't die they... Mm, right they had the, his car parts so yeah. it's not known exactly how Barris knew Eshrick but when he was given the spider's mangled body after Eshrick had stripped it out stripped it out of the Porsche in 1956 Barris announced that he was going to rebuild Little Bastard but that proved to be a Herculean task as the wrecked chassis had no remaining integral integral strength. Now, okay, I'm just going to throw this out here. How the hell is it? I can see Herculean and know how to say it. <laughs> but not integral. But I stumbled with integral. Oh, golly. Anywho. You're overthinking it. Uh-huh. Instead, Barris decided to weld aluminum sheets of metal over the caved-in front fender of the cockpit area he proceeded to beat the aluminum panels with two by fours trying to simulate what would appear to have been collision damage so why didn't he just leave it wrecked i think it was there was a hole but if he's wanting to tour it as a wreck just leave it as a wreck but i'm I'm thinking it was like peeled off oh they had taken stripped it down to a frame and was okay so he was trying to build it back enough to make it look like it did when it was right 
Later in 1956, Barris loaned out the, the little bastard to the Los Angeles chapter of National Safety Council for a local rod and cruise show. The gruesome display was promoted as James Dean's last sports car. During 1957 to 1959, the exhibit was toured in various rod and custom car shows, movie theaters, bowling alleys, highway safety displays throughout California. So these are our safety displays, so it's basically like don't drive like a race car driver or this will happen to you. Right. Okay. There are a few stories associated with the curse that can be corroborated. For example, a wire wire service story on March 12, 1959, reported that Little Bastard temporarily stored in a garage at 3158 Hamilton Avenue in Fresno caught fire awaiting display as a safety exhibit in a coming sports and customs automobile show. However, on May 12, 1959, the Fresno Bee reported that the fire occurred on the night of March 11th and only slight damage occurred to the spider without any damage to other cars or property in the garage. No one was injured. That's kind of like my painting. Yeah, a lot of similarities. Interesting. The case of the fire was unknown, or the cause of the fire was unknown. It burned two tires and scorched the paint on the vehicle. Later that year, Little Bastard toured toured national auto shows and traffic safety exhibits. The legend also holds that the Little Bastard mysteriously disappeared in 1960. According to Barris, the spider was returned from a traffic safety exhibit in Florida in a sealed truck. In Barris's book and many TV interviews, he said Little Bastard was being shipped back in a sealed boxcar when the train arrived in Los Angeles, Barris said. He signed the manifest and verified that the seal was intact, but the boxcar was empty. Sounds like insurance fraud. Or, yeah. <laughs> I mean. Like he's trying to get the insurance money for James Dean's wrecked car by having it disappear. Right. But somebody had to not put it on there, so it had to run pretty deep. Yeah. Oh, let me find it. Empty, empty box car. Raskin believed that Barris's little bastard sideshow had lost its fan appeal just as the 1960 pop culture began to focus on big block muscle cars. See, it lost its interest. He wasn't getting any money anymore, so uh-huh. suddenly it gets stolen. Also believes, Raskin also believes that Barris opted to misplace Little Bastard. Oh, see, Raskin agrees with me. Yeah. The mysterious disappearance stories were, were Barris's way of Perpetuating. Perpetuating Dean the Dean myth, especially on the milestone anniversary of Dean's death. So he'd get on TV doing interviews on the anniversaries, talking mm-hmm. about the car that he used to have that disappeared, probably. Although the legendary little bastard seemingly has disappeared from sight, historic auto attractions in Roscoe, Illinois, claims to have the original piece of Dean Spider on display, a small chunk of aluminum, a few square inches in size. 
that was pried off the sto- and stolen from the area where the windscreen broke while the spider was being stored in the, was that Coleman? In a garage. In a garage <laughs> following the crash. Also in 2005, for the 50th anniversary of Dean's death, the Volvo, that's not Volvo. Volo. Volo Auto Museum in Volo, Illinois, announced that they were displaying what was purported to be the passenger door of Little Bastard. Volo and Barris offered, is that a million? One million. One million to anyone that could prove that they owned the remains of Little Bastard. No one came forth to claim the prize. It's probably a safe bet for Barris to be able to offer that because he's probably got it. Yeah, it's probably tucked away somewhere. Because if I don't quote me and don't bash me over this, but I think George Barris also um, done like the original the original Batmobile. Oh. So that's why he was the king of customs. Right. So he built... He's got it hid somewhere. Um, her words, not mine. <laughs> We're coming for you, Bears. Is he dead? I think so. Okay. I ain't coming for you. The the 4Cam Porsche engine, number 900... Oh, let me just back it up. 90059. Along with the original California owner's registration, a.k.a. California Pink, pink Slip, Listing the engine number is still in possession of the family of the late Dr. Erstrick. Porsche's transaxle assembly is currently owned by a Porsche collector and restorer, Jack Stiles, in Massachusetts. Raskin originally documented and published all serial numbers and VIN number for the Spider's chassis, engine, and transmission, as well as his 300 and 56 super speedster to date. Neither of Dean's Porsches have been located. So Raskin put them out there trying to say, hey, if you've got these, let us know. Nobody's right. coming forward. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, Barris has got the car tucked away, so those right. numbers aren't going to appear. Right. But the other one is the speedster that he had before that he traded away. Right. That no. they're looking for. But it could be smushed in a scrapyard somewhere. It could be so long gone, yeah. Yeah, and melted down and it who could knows be parts what. of other cars now. Right. So, so so that's got mine finished up and guess what guys? Y'all don't have to listen to me no more <laughs> and my debauchery of reading. So, um I'm doing a pretty well known one that's kinda been done a lot, but I kinda felt like we couldn't do an episode on curses without talking about the Dybbuk box. Oh, Dybbuk douche. I mean, Dybbuk box. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I, I feel like this story has been heard by a lot of people, but like I said, we're going to talk about it anyways. Um, and I think there is more than one Dybbuk box in the world. It's, it's really a, like a term, um, but I'm going to discuss the well-known Dybbuk box. Are you going to tell us what a Dybbuk box is? I am. All right. So, um, the modern legend for this Dybbuk box begins in 2003 
when an item was listed on eBay by Kevin Manis. It was a wooden wine box or wine cabinet, which when I first heard the story, honestly, I'm picturing like a china cabinet kind of thing. But this is like a small like desktop kind of cabinet. Like it maybe like two, three bottles of wine kind of size. Okay. From what I could tell. So um, it contained an odd assortment of small objects like pennies, candlestick holders, and a granite statue that was inscribed with the word Shalom, which means peace. Manus purchased the box from the granddaughter of the original owner in 2001 at an estate sale. Manus refinished furniture, and he bought it as a project to work on as a gift for his mother. The box had belonged to a Holocaust survivor who got it after escaping to Spain and later brought it to the U.S., Now, the granddaughter that sold the box said that her grandmother was adamant that the box remained locked because it contained a dibbik. Dibbik comes from the Hebrew meaning to cling, and in Jewish folklore refers to an unclean spirit that torments victims until it is removed by exorcism. So, it, um, basically, it's a exercised spirit that they've stuck in a box. The grandmother had asked that the box be buried with her. So she was wanting to make sure nobody got it. Take it with her. Right. But that was against the rules of an Orthodox Jewish burial, so the the family didn't do it. So, things started happening soon after Manus bought the box and put it in his shop. An employee called him one night because the employee heard light bulbs breaking and screaming coming from the basement where the box was stored. There was a foul stench of cat urine throughout the store, and Manus didn't have any cats. So, it wasn't just a cat that was peeing everywhere like we have. Just after Manus gave his mother the box, she had a stroke. And when I say just after, like from what I saw, it was he gave her the box. They were going to lunch. He went to the bathroom, comes out, and his mom's sitting there and can't talk. Right. So, like, immediately had a stroke. Um, when he visited her in the hospital, she still wasn't able to speak, but was communicating by pointing to letters. And she spelled out to him, no gift. Well, he was like, no, Mom, I did get you a gift. Remember, I got you the box. So she spelled out, hate gift. Oh, wow. (laughs) Take the hint, bud. Yeah, like, I don't want your fucking box. Um, So Manus takes the cabinet, decides he'll get his mom something else, and he gives the cabinet to his sister. She only kept it for a week before she gave it back to him, saying she couldn't get the doors on it to stay closed. Now, there weren't any, like, springing open mechanisms or anything. Like, they just swung. But she would close it and latch it, and they would come back open. So, Manus then gave it to his brother, because apparently he hates his family. (laughs) So, his brother and his brother's wife only kept it for three days. 
His brother said it smelled like jasmine flowers, but his wife kept complaining that she was smelling cat urine. There's the cat urine again. There's the cat urine again. So, Manus gets it back, and he gives it to his girlfriend. Oh, that's a sign of love right there. (laughs) But she asked him to just sell it after two days. So, Manus puts it up for sale in his shop, um, and he sells it to a middle-aged couple. He goes in three days after selling it to open up his store and sees the cabinet sitting in front of his doors of his shop with a note that says, This has a bad darkness. They didn't bring it back trying to get money back. They didn't return it or want store credit. They just left left it. it. Like Closed locked door and said, hey, here's your stuff. You can have it back. Thank you very much. Peace out. Right. So Manus takes it home. He began having a recurring nightmare. He'd be walking with someone that he's close to. So I guess the person changed depending on the dream. Um, And he would look over in their eyes and see something evil looking back at him. Mm. The person would then transform into a gruesome, demonic hag. The hag then proceeded to beat him up. And when he woke up, he would have bruises where the hag hit him. Wow. So, there was some occasion where Manus, while he still has the thing in his house, um, has his sister his brother and his brother's wife all over to his house and they all spend the night. So all people who had had this box. His sister began talking the next morning at breakfast about a nightmare she had the night before and remembered she had had it before. As they all talked, they realized that they all had this nightmare the previous night and had had this nightmare at other times when the cabinet had been in their home. And it was that same dream of walking with someone and it turning into a hag and beating them up. Mana started seeing shadow figures in his home and began smelling cat urine or jasmine flowers and continued to have the nightmare. So he, he listed the cabinet for sale on eBay. He wanted to get rid of it. And he put all this information on the eBay listing. Um... There was an edit and an update on the eBay listing. Um, I guess it was for sale in June of 2003. And when he came home on Friday, June 13th, yeah, Friday the 13th in 2003, he found all 10 of his fish in his aquarium dead. Oh, wow. So, guess who now owns this particular Dybbuk box? Um, I'm going to take a wild guess and say... Zach Baggins. Zach Baggins. And is it Zach Baggins or Baggins? I think it's Baggins. That's what I thought, but the thing I read didn't have the S on the end, so. Anyways, y'all know who I'm talking about. The ghost hunter guy. Ghost adventures, whatever the hell he does. He runs around and yells at spirits and makes things up. I didn't say that. (laughs) So he has a haunted museum in Las Vegas, and he has this Dybbuk box. Now, probably a few of you have heard of Post Malone. Uh, yes. So, in June 2018, Post Malone was visiting with his, I guess, buddy, Zach Baggins. Yep. And Baggins was showing him around the museum. Oh, look, right there. Right there's Post. Yep. And, see, when you go into this museum and you want to go up and see the Dybbuk box, it's in, like, a glass case. And you can't touch it. 
and you even have to sign a waiver and be over 18 to even go in the room with it. But I guess because Post Malone is a celebrity and they're good buddies and they're having a few beers, they decide, or Baggins decides. Sort of say, there's no they. Yeah, Baggins, Baggins decides, I'm going to show it to him and I'm going to take this glass case off. It was on TV. Mm-hmm. There was a Halloween special he was doing. I don't, I don't know if it was on that. I saw it on TMZ. Maybe it was. Yeah. But um, he took him in to show it to him. And took the glass case off, and Baggins has his hand resting on top of the box. So he's actually touching touching the box. So I guess Post Malone starts getting a little uncomfortable with this situation, and he's like, come on, man, let's let's go. Let's get out of here. And Baggins isn't budging. So he he reaches for him and touches his arm. And and you can watch the video, and and we'll try to remember to link it on the Facebook page, because you can find it on YouTube. Um, when Post Malone touches Zach Baggins' arm, they both jump like there was some sort of electrical shock or, or something that just scared the bejesus out of both of them. And they hightail it out of the room. So after this incident, Post Malone had a series of unfortunate events. Yes, he so did. To say. <laughs> um, and some people have attributed it to... The Dybbuk box. To the Dybbuk box. Yep. Basically, like, getting some transference through Zach Baggins' body of him touching it. Um, in late in August 2008, Post Malone was on a plane to London, and just after takeoff, the tires blew off. I don't know what that means. That, that Like, the landing gear just blew off of the plane and were gone, I guess? Um, maybe they went flat. But the pilot did manage to land safely. So he, he crash-landed, but... Nobody was hurt. Um, a few days after that... I bet there was some dirty pants on that afterwards. There probably was, yeah. But, okay, let's be honest. Post Malone's pants are probably dirty a lot of times. He just look. I'm going to borrow from a co-worker's phrase. He looks like he smells musty. I bet he does. <laughs> but he's musty all the way to the bank, so That's it. good for him. Cha-ching. Um, a few days after that... Armed robbers broke into a home where Post Malone used to live and demanded to see him, but obviously he wasn't there. He didn't live there anymore. They thought he did. They broke into the home with guns and demanded to see him. So, once again, narrowly escaping a bad situation. Then on September 7th, 2018, Post Malone's Rolls Royce was T-boned by a Kia (laughs) in West Hollywood. But Post Malone wasn't injured. So, and, and I tried to look. I remember seeing this stuff when it was going on and people talking about the curse and right. Post Malone being cursed by the Dybbuk box. Um, but I couldn't find any updates. So I guess it wore off. Maybe so. But I think I had heard somewhere that it takes a lot of effort to make a Dybbuk box to get a, to, to an actual, you know, to get a malicious spirit into the box. I mean, it's like an act of Congress through the... Well, yeah. I mean, it's first of all, it has to be an exercise spirit. So you've got to have someone that can perform exorcisms. Right. So it's not something and then just do. you basically, like, catch it in the box. And, and, and then you have to seal it. So, you know, and that's when um, Manus, when he was selling the Dybbuk box, he was including all of the items that were inside. Right. And I didn't list all of them. There was even like a lock of hair that mm. was in there. 
um, he tried to send it back to the family that no, they he bought it from, but they, they didn't, didn't want, want it. it no. Yeah, they, um, you know, he thought maybe it was you know family treasures or something like, hey, here's your grandma's lock of hair. You may want this. Right. They're like, you keep that shit. Yeah, all you, buddy. We don't want this juju. Like, so um, that's that's the very popular. Dybbuk box story, like I said, I mean, I think you, there are other Dybbuk boxes. There are. Um, there's a couple up on eBay right now that I saw, but, I mean, how do you know if right. it's actually a Dybbuk box or if it's somebody that just has a really old box or even a new one that they distressed right. and, and just, they're trying to get you to pay $500 for it. And they melt a little bit of candle wax on it and say right. it's sealed. I mean, I could take a creepy looking doll and cut a piece of my hair and throw a few wheat pennies in a burnt candle in a box and seal it with some wax and tell you it's a Dybbuk box. You could, but we're not going to. Yeah, you're not going to know until you get it and bad shit doesn't happen to you, I get I don't know why you'd buy that. I'm not going to lie. If it was the right price, I'd get it. Now, I remember, too, there was some somebody... The Halloween special you're talking about, wasn't somebody going to open, open a Dybbuk box I, live on camera? I think it was Zach. I think Zach was going to open his. But I think they didn't do it. I, yeah, because I think he chickened out. Yeah, because you're going to get possessed by demons. <laughs> like, so. I, I don't... Even if you're just listening to paranormal stuff for entertainment, you like hearing ghost stories, you know, you don't believe in any of it, but you just think that it's... That the horror genre is interesting and entertaining. I feel like you still got to have... Just that little bit of respect for it to not cross the line. And I feel like right. opening a Dybbuk box that contains an exercise spirit or demon or whatever definitely is that line. Uh, yeah. Like, I mean, mocking ghosts and tell them, come get me, you know, like Zach Baggins does on his show. Okay, that's one thing. But calling out demons and letting them out of their prison. Yeah, that's no go. That's not cool. Not cool at all. So, so that that's our episode on curses. And some of y'all may have thought I was just going to sit here and say fuck the whole time because that is my favorite curse. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. You know, had to work that in there because obviously it's the best. Um, but I guess we, we are officially launched on the Facebook now. Right. We have um, our live shows up as of this past Friday. Yep, we'll be... Releasing a show we we did talk about doing every other week, but it looks like right now we're doing it every week. Yeah, as for now. Maybe a dark week every once in a while if we get just really slammed or something. But right, um, you know we're we're gonna post content related to what we're talking about each week as it, as the new episode goes up. Um, please share the Facebook page, share the podcast with people, right. get the word out there, leave us some reviews on your podcast site. Um, I, I hear that that helps get your name out there. Um, and let us know what you like and don't like. You can send us an email with that stuff to WTFWTPodcast at gmail.com. Um, Dwayne reads those so I don't get my feelings hurt. Yeah. <laughs> and there's actually a button that you can just cl- click to email us on our Facebook page. And our Facebook and Instagram is WTF Was That Pod. And of course, as always, our kick-ass intro and outro music—that's House of Curses. Y'all check right. them out; they're they're really good, um, and they're nice enough to let us borrow a piece of their song. So, 
Anything else? I think that's pretty much got this one wrapped up. All right. Well, may the fleas of a thousand camels infest your armpits. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, do you want to say it? Push a button.